Good evening, y'all. You can't move in this room tonight for record collector contributors. So the first one, our very own Jason Barnard. And the aforementioned Pendering Award winning author of... I've just finished this book, by the way. Let's do it. It's absolutely brilliant. It's so good. And um, we're so pleased to welcome Mr. Bob Stanley. Thank you. A huge welcome, Bob. Thank you. So, I mean, first of all, um, BG's Children of the World, just a fantastic summary of what is one of the greatest bands of all time. There's a really interesting moment, I think, near the start of the book, where you, you, you I think it's 1975, and you get a tape, and on one side there's the Beach Boys, and you've got that sort of Californian optimism, and on the other side you've got, I think, a lot of the, the 60s material, the Bee Gees, which, is on, which I think you describe as the flip, the flip to that. Do you want to take us back to that? Yeah, um... Yeah, uh, my mum and dad didn't really have many records, but my mum's brother, Bill, did have quite a lot of records. Yeah, so he, uh, when I got a cassette recorder, I had a reel-to-reel -reel before that, I'm that old, but uh, I got um, a cassette recorder in 1975, Christmas 75. Um, as you know, I'm thinking about that, I'm a year out in the book. I would have got the tape in 76. But, um, right. Um, yeah, so Bill started making me C90s of like the Beatles albums and um, uh, Abbott's Great Hits and Arrival on the other side was another one I remember. But yeah, the one that I really loved was um, it's Beach Boys' Great Hits on one side, which was a 1970 compilation, I think. Um, it had this kind of like black and white cover, but like a, a shot of them looked smiling, but like really bleached out black and white shot. Um, like the sun was incredibly bright and, you know, there was so much optimism coming out of it and on the other side was Best of the Bee Gees um, which was 1969 that was all their 60s stuff um, and I didn't really know anything apart from Massachusetts I must have known but I didn't recognise anything else and I absolutely loved it I mean yeah really it's, it's, it's like you couldn't get two more opposite sounds you know like uh, everything's minor key Beach Boys side was all you know major keys um, and uh Mellotron, the string arrangements, the vocals, subject matter, New York mining disaster. I started a joke which started the whole world dying. Uh, whatever. Um, really kind of like very much the opposite. And and also, it, the, the, the band's names to me sounded sort of similar. You know what Beach Boys were, obviously that made sense. The Bee Gees, it sounded like someone was trying to say Beach Boys and then giving up halfway through or losing the will to say it properly, you know. Um, so yeah, I always in my head, like from from that age, I was like ten, eleven. Um, um, I always sort of equated the two. Yeah, thought the two of them were two sides of the same coin. I think you also describe them as as out perennial outsiders, in a way. They they, they quite never fit in at, at, at times, even though they did kind of keep reinventing themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't. They don't seem to like sort of you know run with many other musicians. Um, you know, every so often it'll be like, you find it, you know, you should be dancing. It's like Stephen Stills playing sort of congas on it. It's like, right, well, okay. <laughs> Just happened to be along the stu in the studio next door, and he was like mates with Barry. But generally, that it's not like, uh, and they sort of hung out, you know, 
Morris and Ringo hung out because they were next door neighbours. But generally, they didn't really seem to fit into any scene or hang out with other musicians. Um, they, they were very tight. And I think that, that goes back to the very beginning, really, because they were um, three brothers who uh, would move schools every five minutes because their parents moved house every six months. They had no money. They kept running off, pack their bags and run. Um, and so they never really built up any strong friendships with other, other people when they were kids. And I think that just carries on through their lives, really. They're, they're very insular. So the, their father, Hugh, was a band leader, and that was one of the factors in them moving. And he was a band le leader, but they, it was not like... They didn't have much money, to say the least. No, no. I think... Um, yeah, so they're born, the three brothers were born in the Isle of Man, um, where Hugh is a, a band leader in a couple of hotels there. Uh, so this is like in the 50s, when the Isle of Man is still primarily a holiday resort, like the Isle of Wight. Um, it's not a tax haven. I think that comes in the 60s when the holiday resort started like losing money. They thought, how else are we going to keep this place independent in a tax haven? Um, so, yeah, they're, they're doing fine then, but like you know, it's it's the 50s, so the big bands are sort of falling apart. You know, um, the demand for them is going down, and, and they cost a fortune to run. So uh, they moved to Manchester, um, where he's from originally. And um, and he can't find any work there. He, he works he works as a TV repairman for a bit, and there's odd jobs like that. So they're re they're really poor. Um, and uh, he the one the one thing they have got is a gramophone. So um, the boys love listening to his records. He's got a fair bit of classical, obviously big bands. Uh, and the Mills Brothers. He introduced them to the Mills Brothers. And they start harmonising together when they when they're very young. Um, and uh, when the Everly Brothers come along, they're like, oh, yeah, we could, we could do that as well. But we've got, like, a third harmony, so we're even better. You know, sort of quite confident. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, but that's, that's down to, yeah, originally down to, definitely down to Hugh's influence. And then when, you know, listening to rock and roll on the radio is what really inspires them to get going. Well, they were a bit of a tearaway, tear or some of them were, were tearaways as, as a kid, and that was one of the reasons why... They ended up going to Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. They, um, they, yeah, they took rob stuff, um, and the police knocked on the door a few times. Um, it's, it's one point where Robin, uh, his, his mum's, his mum complains she never gets any flowers off her, off her husband, so he's like steals a wreath, <laughs> gives it to her. He still says R.I.P. on it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's a, that, it's. It's kind of low level, um, but uh, Robin then starts uh, setting fire to things. So uh, <laughs> when when they burn down like a shop uh, in Chorlton, um, the police knock on the door and go, "We think your kids are going to end up in Borstal unless you uh, take the opportunity to move to Australia <laughs> with this cheap ticket." So that that was the only reason they go. I think they had they had a relative out there, but that was the only reason they went. And I I always assumed that when they got over to Australia. Because they start, started having some success or have, starting to record a little bit and playing, the, and they released a lot of material in Australia, but they weren't. It, it was a it, reading your book. It was a bit more of a slog than I naturally assumed. It wasn't like they were constantly number one in Australia or no, anything like that. They had no. to work very hard as, and and they were very young. Yeah, they're basically seen as a a child act because I mean, like they, when they when they got there. 
they realised the Australian police weren't going to be as lenient as Manchester police. They couldn't carry on doing what they were doing before. So they think, well, let's concentrate on singing instead. Um, and they um, they start singing at the local speedway track. They like stand on the back of a truck and start harmonising, um, holding out a, you know, a bucket. Uh, and the bloke who runs the speedway track is like, well, I would kick him out, but they sound really good. So he becomes their manager, a bloke called... Um, um, Bill Gates, his name is not that, not the Bill Gates, <laughs> uh, but he's one of the BGs, so he's kind of important there. Um, and uh, yeah, and also, and also Hughie realizes that, that you know this is actually a way the family can make a little bit of money because he can't. He's working as a um, a bush photographer, which I didn't really know what bush photographer was, but it was like you go into into the outback, yeah, yeah, no, not that. <laughs> <laughs> Because no, no one had cameras. Was, <laughs> Australia was very, very um, behind the times, and uh, he'd like, take photos of families and stuff, go out to like into the middle of nowhere. Um, but again, not not a great way to make a living or to get rich. So um, he realises that the, 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 his kids are like the best way for the family to make any money, um, and becomes their manager uh, along with Bill Gates. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, three years, four years after they get that, they get a record deal um, and put out, I think, a dozen singles while they're in Australia, none, none of which sells anything, really. And so Beatles records worked their way to Australia, and that was an influence. And I think Barry was starting to write as well, certainly back particularly Barry was starting to write in that period as, as the, the Beatles influence was coming in. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think when the Beatles um, came out, they were like, well, we don't sound that dissimilar, you know, vocally. Um, and I think they'd only put out one single, early, yeah, early 63, they'd only put out one single before they became aware of the Beatles. Um, so that their influence is pretty much in all their Australian stuff. Um, but, yeah, Barry had been writing songs all the time, you know, he, he just started writing songs when he was, when he was a kid because they they just thought that's what you do. I think they, you know, they love Buddy Holly, so he's probably the inspiration there. Um, and the Everly Brothers, I suppose, wrote a, a fair few of their songs too. Um, but, um, yeah, he starts writing songs and, and they do get picked up by other artists. He even gets a couple of things recorded in America. I'm trying to think who by now. Um, not Freddie Cannon, but, I mean, there's it's a couple of people like that do album tracks. Bobby Vinton, maybe. Um, there's a couple of album tracks he gets... He gets Records in the states, which is quite remarkable, because they, they mean pretty much nothing in Australia. They're just regarded as like a, a sort of kiddie act, you know, like the, sort of the Nolans or something. I don't know, um, but you know, without having hits. Um, and yeah, but by by sort of sixty five, sixty six, Robin starts to write songs as well, and, and then Morris does as well. All three of them, because uh, they're because they're two and a half years younger, and when they're in Australia, most of the time they're in Australia, they're like half half the height of Barry as well which is probably why he always thought he was the, the boss of the group. It makes sense. So I think one, one of the final Australian singles was Spicks and Specs, which I think eventually got to number one in Australia. And it was around that time that... Was it their father who wrote to Brian Epstein? Is yeah. Is that how it, how it worked? Yeah, that's right, yeah. I think... Um... I think the Easy Beats had come over to London in 66 and Fries On My Mind was a hit in late 66. Um, and they'd obviously been like, they'd come from nowhere in Australia and got big really quickly. So the Bee Gees are like, well, this, this should be happening to us. Um, but I think also there's um, 
because Australia's involved in Vietnam, I think there's conscription for 18-year-olds, which I think is what you get, the Easy Beats, and a lot of other Australian teenagers coming to Britain in, um, in 1966. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the Barry says to his dad, you know, we, we need to go back and try and make it over there. So Hugh writes to Brian Epstein, as, as you do, as a start at the top. Um, here, here are my sons, here's some acetates of the songs I've written, if you're interested. And um, luckily enough, Robert Stigwood was working at NEMS at that point, and he opened the package, or in, he saw it's from Australia, and he's Australian, so he like, gave it a listen, thought, well, this lot are incredible, you know, they're, they're very young, and they're writing all their own material, they don't sound like anyone else, apart from a bit like the Beatles. But, you know, got very unique harmonies. So um, he picks them up. As soon as they get off the, you know, arrive in London, within a week, they got a phone call from Robert Stigwood saying, coming for an audition. And within a week of that, they signed to Polydor, got a management deal. Um, so after, like, seven years of not getting anywhere in Australia, that everything happens inside a month once they get here. The, the songs that they were writing in that, that period as they came over, the leap in quality is as... Is astonishing. The, you know the material that makes up that first, the first Bee Gees album that we know know as the Bee Gees now, and the singles in that period like New, mm. New York Mining Disaster, are, are stunning. Yeah, it's, it's a massive leap, really. I think the last year they were in Australia, um, there's a bloke called Aussie Byrne who had a studio. They were living in Sydney by this point. Um, and he let them have the run of it in the evening. He said, like, well, yeah, when, when I'm not working here, you can just do what you want. So learn how to arrange, use a stu- use, you know, basically engineer their own recordings. And, you know, the twins are 16 at this point and Barry's 18. Um, so by the time they get over here, they, they, they have, they're full of confidence and they know they can do it if they're given the means. So, um, you know, when they're given someone who could do orchestration, well, like, it's like, well, let's have massive orchestration and everything because we can, we know how to make that work. Um, uh, Morris is a really accomplished bassist by that point and learns how to use compression and uh, another way around the studio already, which I guess most teenagers in Britain wouldn't have done. So they're not they're not awed by um, the, the situation they find themselves in, uh, and and can write songs incredibly fast. That that goes right the way through their career. I mean, they can write. Three songs in the morning with no, without breaking sweat. It's crazy. So I think we've got a we've got a clip in a second which typifies that that leap in songwriting. Then close another door. The song about a, an old man in a home, and then the musical styles is just it's just weird. You've, is it Robin with like an a cappella star? You've got um, you you kind of go into a pop chorus, then psychedelia. It finishes with with soul. I mean, it's, it's brilliant, but weird. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> that's, I mean, maybe, you that's their story in a nutshell, yeah. really. So we end up with three years of some amazing material. You've got a series of stunning albums. The outtakes are amazing. There's tracks, that, songs of theirs that are recorded by other artists. That they, the, How productive they were in, in that period up until... 69 is just amazing. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, they, they arrive in January 67, um, and by Christmas, they've had a number one with Massachusetts, um, for American top 20 hits, uh, and they've got like an ITV Christmas special with them filmed in Liverpool Cathedral. It's like, 
what happened quick? <laughs> it's incredible. And they've, they've, they've recorded Beaches first, they've recorded the second album, Horizontal, by, by then as well. Um, and yeah, in 68, they record two more albums, one of which is a, a double, um, which comes out in kind of early 69. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's insane. That's, and, and, you know, not including the songs that are out for like, um, a lot of like, people who'd sort of fallen off the map a bit, like Adam Faith, Billy Joe Kramer, Jerry Marsden. And they're all terrific singles. They're all worth listening to. Milk, milk Cow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah, Adam Faith one's fantastic. Um, I've spoken to a couple of the non-Gib BGs in this period, Colin and Vince, and they both speak about, I think the, the, the drink and the drugs for different members started to come in as well as that productive. So it wasn't... It, things started to... And, and differences between the brothers as well in the end of that period started to come in? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they were teenagers. They were teenagers in London at a pretty most exciting time in the 20th century to be in London, um, hanging out with the Beatles. It's like, what were they going to do? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think um, Morris likes drinking, Barry likes getting stoned, and Robin likes uppers and downers. So it's like... <laughs> not, a, not a great combination and on top of their different personalities um, so yeah things come to a head in 1969 when Robin takes offence at uh, a song called Lamplight isn't an A-side and Barry's song First of May becomes an A-side so Robin quits um, and, uh, and goes solo initially with a huge amount of success with a song called Saved by the Bell which was like a massive hit all over Europe so it was a, a kind of hiatus and there were a, a duo um, Morris and Barry for a bit as well there was some success in the, the early se- well I say some success huge success with some singles in that period like How, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart for example amazing but then you get that really interesting period in the early 70s where they were only st- getting minor hits and this was in the run up to the, the period that were, the album that will be focusing main course and that's a fascinating period yeah, I think it's um, it's funny because I mean I, was, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the book even, but um, I think because they because they, they, they're a family and they they break up and fall out really badly like um, in nineteen sixty nine, they get back together at the end of nineteen seventy, more out of like necessity than anything else, and they have to like rebuild their family as well as like writing songs, so it's like the the the, the albums over the next three or four years are really just getting to know each other again and finding common ground again, uh, which is kind of, I think, sort of comparable to, like, Fleetwood Mac in the same period after yeah. Peter Green leaves and before they meet Bucky and the Knicks, or Pink Floyd after Sid Barrett and before Dark Side of the Moon. It's kind of like uh, um, people had had this huge success at the end of the 60s and things fell apart. It's like, oh, how do, how do we keep going? We need to find a way forward. And, yeah, in all, in all those cases, the records, I think, are, are really fascinating. Um, so, yeah, they, 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 they find their way... Um, so, so they're on good terms again, and they're making, writing great songs, but basically for themselves. And the public is kind of like, yeah, well, what's in it for us? Because like, you know, like David Bowie's here now. <laughs> what are you going to do next? Um, and so the, the sales have fallen off a cliff. And, and Atlantic, their American label, says we're going to have to get you an outside producer, or we're going to drop you. And their their noses are put out of joint. I don't like it, but the outside producer is Arif Mardin, who produced. Yeah, respect for Aretha Franklin among a million other Cupid and Psyche by Squitty Politi. You know, it's like ridiculous, one of the greatest producers of all time. Um, and he, he can see 
where they should be going. And he says you should just listen to American radio, listen to American hits. Um, you love R&B, you always have done, it's obvious. Listen to that. Uh, they do an album called Mr Natural, and of course that sells even less than anything up to that point, and uh, that's the time at which they're playing Batley Variety Club and yeah. Withenshaw Golden Garter and places. Um, when, when Mr Natural's has come out, they don't play anything off it. I think maybe they've had one song off it uh, live. Um, so they just think it's over at that point, uh, and Arif Martin has more, more faith in them than they have in themselves. Well, we've got a clip here now of Mr Naturals. I think this was a single that got to the lower reaches of the Hot 100. And this is the very... I mean, they've always had a soulful edge, to, you know, shown by um, uh, Love Somebody, for example. But this is where the, the influence starts to come in with Mr Natural. So it's make or break time now. The, the music's getting there. Might not be quite there but it is certainly getting there and they're starting to define a sound so early 1975 they go over to miami which is a really interesting place to record as well because the music scene over there was george mccray rock rocky baby as well mm -hmm. was, was was kind of in in that particular music scene as well yeah. so this was it was they were really you know it was having to come back to Batley again if it didn't take off basically <laughs> no offence to Batley yeah it's um, it, it's, it's funny cause the reason I go to Miami they record Mr Natural in London like during the three day week and get um, Arif Martin over to do that um, and I think Eric Clapton because Robert Stig would also manage Cream and manage Eric Clapton he says to them I'll tell you what I've just recorded this hit album I've got in, uh, in Miami and I stayed in this great place um, you should stay there and record at Criteria, do your new album there. Um, so just take his advice and go over, and it, that's you know that's it. That's the, that's what's been missing. Um, so we recorded everything in London, with the exception of one album. They'd recorded everything in London up to then, um, even though they're big in America. So um, yeah, being in Miami makes all the difference. And yeah, you're right. It's um, it's exactly the time. Casey and the Sunshine Band, George McRae, are basically the. the the new soul sound of America, um, and again, that's just a coincidence. It's um, it's it's just kind of happenstance. Uh, so they get there, and one of the first things that happens is they like they're driving. They drive over this rickety bridge to get to the studio every day, and the sounds of the rickety bridge is basically the rhythm on jive talking, because they hear this and think, oh yeah, well, yeah, we could do something with that. Um, so everything everything comes together then, yeah, and they do main main course. And the band in that period as well. Because they already had, um, is it Alan Kendall, the guitarist? But then you've got Blue Weaver coming in, who's just a genius on synth. And that started to take them in a new direction as well. I, I think some of that may have been down to cost. You know, less strings, bring the synth in, a bit yeah. more of a, a leaner, tighter band. Yeah, they used to like do shows with full orchestra. Not not in Batley, obviously, but I mean, like, most of the time yeah, they, did. they did play with a full orchestra. Bill, Bill Shepard orchestration. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I think it's uh, um, Blue Weaver, the keyboard player, says, "Well, you know, I could, I could do a lot more with, with keyboards if you want." I think uh, at this point, Morris is only only playing bass and leaves blues to the keyboard parts. Uh, they've got Dennis Dennis Bryan, who's the drummer in Amen Corner, and Blue Weaver have been in Amen Corner as well. Um, and you'd never really—I don't think you'd really get some Amen Corner records where that would have ended up. But like Dennis Bryan's an incredible drummer, um, really tight. 
Um, he's on that, so he, he makes a big difference to their sound as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, one, one one of the really interesting things about them is they're, they're obviously very self-contained, but they can't really work out when they need to reach out for help, and and then it just it just happens to them. So they end up with this new band. It's like basically same as in the sixties where they had Vince Maloney and uh, Colin Peterson really helped their sound. Um, this this new band really helps them go forward. Because going back to jive talking, the the bass on that is really interesting because you got. Blue Weaver synth doubling up with Morris on the bass, which yeah. just give it a, a real oomph. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a similar thing on You Should Be Dancing. I think uh, doubling up the bass lines is something that, uh, with keyboards, is something that they realise really works. What about Nights on Broadway from this album? Because I, I think that was the song where Barry, Barry's falsetto started to come in, kind of a little bit in the past, but not, not much. But this was where it was... I think Barry was a bit reluctant to use the falsetto, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a little bit at the end of Mr. Natural and a couple of songs of that album. As a, just just as, as a flavour, you can hear it as a background sound. Um, but all three of them could sing falsetto, and I think they just, they'd never thought of doing it as a lead vocal. What happened was they were doing impressions of Russell Tompkins from the Stylistics and didn't think Arif Martin could hear him. He was like, oh, yeah, I might use that later. So they're doing Nights on Broadway, it gets to the end, they want to have this big ending. He says... Can you uh, can you scream in tune to Barry? Mm-hmm. He says, "Oh, I'll give it a go," uh, and that's the end of Nights. But I mean, like again, another example of how Reef Martin was a really subtle influence is that it's just called Lights on Broadway originally, and he's like making Nights on Broadway sound slightly more mysterious. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, we could do that. Um, so he just nu- just nudges them gently, and it doesn't take much of a push, and end up uh, with this completely different sound and um, hugely hugely successful. The, the, the songs, I mean, they were never short of songs, the Bee Gees, but they were still writing in that period. Because I think see, Fanny B. Tender was about the housekeeper at, at the, um, the, the, the the place that they were recording and staying at as well. Yeah, I think wrote a song called Be Tender With My Love, and then uh, the housekeeper was called Fanny. So Morris said, <laughs> let's call it Fanny Be Tender With My Love. And it's like, we could do. It's like, I don't know if it's going to make it a more commercial prospect. But <laughs> it wasn't a hit in Britain anyway. <laughs> But yeah, it's probably my, probably my favourite Bee Gees song, The Push Come to Shove. Isn't it? So, where, was it, in terms of singles off this album, was it successful in America first? Um, well, John Talking got to number one in America, um, number five here. Then Nights on Broadway was top ten, and Fanny Tender was top twenty there, and neither of them did anything here. So, yeah, they were, they were, it was definitely a much bigger success in America. But I mean, like, Jive Talking was their first top five hit here since the 60s, so... That yeah, it was it was a big hit, and yeah, when I, when I got that C ninety off my uncle, it was like I knew Jive talking, and uh, and you should be dancing would have come out the year that I got the tape, so it's like they were definitely back, um, and I couldn't really equate the two things because I didn't know any of the bits that come in between. And then really, they've hit their groove now for the next I don't know four four years or so, where they they help to define a whole music scene of disco and into Saturday Night Fever and like every every genre it, it peaks and then there's a, the backlash etc and that mm. that kind of affected them ultimately when they got so popular after Saturday Night Fever that there's kind of that, that turn against them Yeah, uh, 1978 in America they have four number ones and they write three more number ones for other people 
which they produce, all of them. So they all have a, the same kind of sound. Uh, and that's included, you know, there's other top ten hits as well. It's They're completely unavoidable, um, which is great. But they, they, they also, there's interviews where they're going, well, you know, we, we know this can't last. We're trying to work out how we can sort of like move forward or bail out while we can. And they don't really get the opportunity because the backlash is so instant, in the States in particular. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I was talking to someone yesterday in, in Manchester, I did a thing in Manchester, and someone from the Philippines and said, I don't really understand why you're saying they fell from favour because, like, in the Philippines, they were always popular. Yes, they were the Bee Gees, they were one of the greatest groups. It's like there was never any period where... So I think it's kind of an, ang- an Anglo-American thing, really, um, where they're, 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 you know, they, they're kind of... Sales fell off a cliff um, in 1980. The 80s are an interesting period in that they... Until we get to You Win Again in the UK in 87... Their biggest hits were with other artists, and that, and lots of hits, and you know, Islands in the Stream, Barbra Streisand, Chain Reaction. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, they they they, they do an album in 1981 called Living Eyes, and the one before the Spirits Having Flown, which sold whatever 10 million or something. And Living Eyes sells, I don't know, under 100,000 or something. It's just wow. like it's it's unbelievable. It's like Beach Boys when they put out Friends, it sells 23,000 copies in America. It's like one of those things where, like, you know, well, anything with our name on is clearly not going to sell. And, it's, you know, it's very sad for them. I think the only way we can keep this going is to write songs for other people because there's nothing wrong with, us, with this, nothing wrong with the songs we're writing. So they do uh, an album with Jimmy Ruffin, um, which has one British and American top ten hit. Um, then they do Dionne Warwick, Heartbreaker album um, in eighty. Two, Kenny Rogers album '83, which got Islands in the Stream. Diana Ross album '85, with Chain Reaction. Um, so, and these are yeah, they're doing complete albums. These are the albums they would have been doing themselves probably. They're kind of like slightly cut for the for the you know tailored towards the um, the artists they're writing for, but um, they're, they're very identifiably Bee Gees songs. I think we've got a great example now of um, Barry Gibb singing with Barbara Streisand and again all the Bee Gees were involved in that Barbara Streisand material the one thing I didn't realise from reading Children of the World was you know great omission from Live Aid yeah no yeah. Bee Gees no I mean no. that is just that's criminal I yeah mean, I think you know in spite of these the songs they're writing all being big hits I think even now you can say to people they wrote Islands in the Stream or Heartbreak and people go I didn't know that it's like yeah, you know, it wasn't publicised. You know, the, the, the pictures weren't on the artwork or anything. Um, I think they were, you know, especially in America and to an extent here as well. They, it took a long time for people to even think about listening to them again. I mean, I was thinking, you know, like ABBA right through the eighties. No one ever talks about ABBA. Um, that's kind of forgotten now. But um, it was, um, yeah, it was just, you know, the seventies was a decade that style forgot and all that kind of stuff. And um, they were just seen as like, yeah. The ultimate seventies, late seventies group, I suppose. Uh, apart, apart from the fact, discovered sort of uh, uh, died a death. But it's, I mean, one, one of the things about listening to to that, I mean, you can hear the Burt Bacharach influence really clearly, which was one of Barry's biggest influences. And close another door, I think you can as well. But um, the structure and the weird changes and chord changes. Um, but the production on that on that record um, and and their their seventies stuff is, is basically the things that. Disco was replaced by in America with things like Toto and Foreigner, Norio Speedwagon, exactly the same. 
kind of studio production sound, uh, but it had more guitar, you know, so uh, rockists were happy, I don't know. Um, yeah, so it's uh, that, that kind of shows that, you know, the, the, the songwriting hadn't, you know, it, it was just the image and the baggage they had, I think, that kind of killed them in the 80s. Yeah. So they, number one in the UK when you win again in 87. But even that dismissive tone was seen in the 90s where you had that infamous Clive Anderson interview where he calls them lay tossers or and then they walk out. But then you know, since the late 90s, and then obviously we've had the very sad passing of Morris way too early and then Robin. But now, shown by uh, Barry Gibb Glastonbury at Legends stage, you know, four years ago or five years ago, whenever mm. it was, they now... They're now towards the status they should be as geniuses of music and one of the great groups, one of the great songwriters of all time. And, and your book is a, a brilliant encapsulation of their whole fascinating uh, work. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it definitely feels like they're... Uh, they still don't get the sort of like kudos at um, the Beach Boys or, or uh, I don't know... Um, the Beach Boys, I always think of being, you know, like I said at the beginning, I always think of being like a sort of parallel, sort of three brothers, and now the oldest one's still alive. There's so many parallels with them, you know. Um, and the Beach Boys are definitely taken more seriously still than the Bee Gees, I think it's... Yeah. Uh, There's a bit of a difference there, because you can't exactly class Kokomo by the Bee Gees, <laughs> uh, by the Beach Boys as a second coming, whereas... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. that's one up for the, the Bee Gees. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the fact they have, like continual hits right the way through to, to when Morris dies in 2003 so every album they put out has uh, a top 10 or top 20 hit in Britain at least one um, which is which is remarkable you know it's and like, that's you know, shown because you have those top 10 lists and it's fascinating you've got all these different styles of music across the, the decades and then you've just got the B, one of the latest BG singles in the top 10 and how they managed to transcend all that those different scenes again is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, even like um, uh, what was it? Pop. I can't think what the thing was called. No, p not Pop Idol. The thing that came afterwards, the Girls Aloud yeah. one. The um, the yeah, male the male group in that One True Voice did a Bee Gees song, like a, a recent Bee Gees song that nobody knew. Um, and obviously they didn't win, but you know, the fact that they chose it is quite quite incredible. You know, it's like they're still seen as. Um, contemporary songwriters that late in the day, which I think is 2002, I think. So finally, to close, before we take a break and listen to main course, what, it, what is it about this album that meant that, you know, you chose it and decided that, you know, we'd, we'd play this in its entirety for the Cat Club? Um, well, I think it's, it's the kind of, it's the pivotal album in their career. I think if this hadn't... If Arif Martin hadn't convinced Atlantic to do one more album with them, um, then I think they, that would have been it. Their career would have been over. Um, but it, and it's also it's, 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 an, it's, an, it's a great album, and it has. It's got to remember for the singles, obviously, like Nights on Broadway and Jive Talking. But there's like a lot of stuff that could have been on previous albums. There's one song that sounds a lot like sung off Ram, you know, um, and, a, and a couple of lovely ballads. It's it, it's kind of them in a nutshell, I think, um, and. There should be a deluxe box set of it, really. It should be like giving it giving its due, but that hasn't that hasn't happened for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, that's the reason I picked it. Brilliant. Well, I think you've summarised it perfectly. Um, thank you, Bob, and over to Rev.
think after watching uh, Barbara and Barry, we all need a drink now. <laughs> just, just quickly, it reminded me, I've got a mate called Les, and at the time his, his, his wife, she was called Les as well, so we used to call her Mr and Mrs Les. And it's just reminded me seeing that clip. There was a t they were watching a Tina Turner special, and Tina's covered David Bowie's Tonight, so she's singing it, and then at the end of the stage, Bowie appears, and Tina gives up. Mr. Les says to Mrs. Les, I wonder if uh, Tina knew that um, David would have come on stage, and Mrs. Les says, well, she would have done if she'd looked in TV Times. <laughs> So, what can I say? Jason, as always, superb. And yet we've got another new best friend, haven't we? Bob Stanley, thank you. After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q&A. Briefly, one question, Bob. I, I mean, I've heard that album before, but until tonight, I didn't realise how much of an album of two halves it was. You've got the first half, which is front-loaded with what were the singles and what you would now associate with the sort of disco era. The second album, especially the first four songs, could have could have been on Bee Gees albums going back five or, or six years. So it really... The, I assume they've curated the album on purpose, where you've got that first side, which is kind of looking forward, and then there's still some wonderful songs on the, the B side, the second side, but actually they've, they've got quite a different feel, except possibly the last song that kind of fits back into where we were with side one. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you know, Edge of the Universe could have been on one of the 60s albums, um, and uh, Come On Over, and... Um, uh, country Lanes uh, definitely sound more like the early 70s stuff um, but All This Making Love I mean, All This Making Love is that, that's yeah. the, that, I assume that was the Ram type yeah. song you were yeah yeah, yeah. it's clearly like a, a Beatles pastiche which is like a weird thing to do in 1975 yeah. Um, but yeah it's, it's funny listening to you like Edge of the Universe is, I, think, I think I never really noticed before I think the opening line is it's just my dog and me at the edge of the universe I think that's what he's singing <laughs> like okay um, and the last song sounds like um, it could be I don't know it could be like uh, a British Tim Pan Alley song from the 70s like mm. David Soul song or something and Come On Over sounds like I can imagine Elvis doing that um, Olivia Newton-John did a cover of it mm. had, a, had a hit and named an album after it um, but uh, yeah so it's really it's, it, it's, there's a lot more variety on side two and side one is much more uh, you can see where, you can see where they're going you know is it true the BG's tour manager used to describe them as pilly, pissy and potty because of, because of the different substances that they appreciated at the time? Uh, yeah, I think they called, they called themselves that. I don't know about the tour manager. They, they referenced themselves as that. As, uh, yeah. But it's... Um, yeah, you can see why uh, things sort of fell apart a bit in the early 70s. Was, the, the three things didn't really go together very well. 
Sorry, they didn't really come across as that sort of heavily sort of influenced at the time as no. they did in the 60s. They, no, I they, mean, they kept um, it together in a, a really good way. Yeah, yeah, I think um, they'd been brought up by their dad to be professionals. You know, they'd like done their years in working men's clubs and, you, you know, smile at all times, you know, even if you sing the sad song, that whole routine. So they were kind of like... They grew up with that, and they, they, they kept that together even when they they couldn't keep anything else together. You know, it's, uh, so um, yeah, they, they always came across as professional. I think, yeah. No, well, j just on that, there's a when there were other non-gig BGs, each of them who I've spoken to, Colin Peterson, Vince Maloney, um, and Jeff Bridgeford, all of them referred to various drugs and the impact, and they they left. They, they couldn't take the pressure and the dynamic between the brothers and, and the various substances. There will be there there will be a time at one of these gatherings when when Gary doesn't ask a question about <laughs> about drugs. <laughs> well, it. <laughs> <laughs> You usually find at some point in, in most bands' careers they discover various substances which change the way they start writing music and the way they start performing music and recording music. So that's, I always think that's like a jump-off point for a lot of the bands that we listen to here. So I think it's interesting in a, in a social way. That's why I always ask. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I jumped off the bridge a long time ago. A very, very long time ago. It's a good job we're not talking about back to basics, isn't it? <laughs> we'll leave that one. Um, just going back to, to Andy Gibb, I, I think looking at the back catalogue now as we do and like we go out and play records and stuff, it's amazing, I think, how shadow dancing now is kind of regarded as like this just this epic lost song but and, and when people first hear it they they think oh this must be the Bee Gees and I think for me when I discovered Shadow Dancing it was like wow this is like a golden a golden record what 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 was the story be, behind that record um well I know they wrote Shadow Dancing the same day they wrote Tragedy and oh one other song um Too Much, too much Heaven they wrote the three of them when they're on the set of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the film, which is maybe the worst film ever made. So while they were wasting their time doing that, they sort of, one afternoon they wrote those three hits, which are all number ones in America. Um, so, yeah, Shadow Dancing was like Andy Gibbs' third number one. Um, and and he's, he's number one for seven weeks in America. It wasn't really a hit here for whatever reason, but it's, it's a fantastic song. Um, but, yeah, he's, he, Andy Gibbs' third album was something I forgot to say until I wrote the book. I'd never listened to Andy Gibbs' third album. And that's, that's fantastic as well. It's called After Dark. And the first single off it was called Desire, which again was a big hit in America and didn't do anything here. But it's just, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful song. And I know his, his, his voice wasn't um, that strong because he, was like, he, was, he wasn't very well. Uh, and Barry Gibb and, and his brothers had to like, sort of do a lot of the backups on that album. So it's effective, that is effectively a Bee Gees album with all, all four brothers on it. So it's definitely, definitely worth a listen. And Olivia Newton-John's on it as well, as an added bonus. Hi there. Uh, great band you're in, by the way. Um, 
thanks to Janus or uh, them at Unity all a couple of years, about five or six years ago. No, um, you, book on the Bee Gees, you've written a fantastic book on the fall. Um, what's the common strand, really? No musical harmonies in the fall. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Manchester, maybe. Uh, that's about it. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, got into, I got into the fall when I was about 15, and uh, they became one of my favourite groups. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's no, no real common strength. I'm trying to think of one. But a passion, a passion for something. both bands. What's that? A passion for both bands. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't think I could write a book about someone I didn't really, didn't really appreciate their music. It's... Um, yeah. You know, I sort of do, do think of myself as a, a writer rather than like a, a journalist, I suppose. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, need, I need to. Um, you know, I, I pitched this, I haven't. Um, and, and, the full, and the full book I wrote with Tessa Norton. Um, or we didn't really write it, it was, it was like a lockdown thing. And we just like, it was after Marky Smith died. And we were thinking, even though we had like a shelf of books on the fall, it was like none of them is exactly the book that we want and it's like what would be the book that we, we want and we just yeah, yours is more of a like a scrapbooky sort of book isn't it it's uh, rather than a biography of of the band yeah yeah such. it's a lot, a lot of like artwork and posters and um, and essays on, on on the world of the fall I suppose really rather than the band not about um, Marky Smith smacking someone in the face or whatever they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's about yeah, the architecture of Manchester or whatever, you know. It's, um, there's a, a bunch of different essays about what, what inspired them. And, like, I think one of the things about the fall that's properly unique is, like, is, is they're, they're, what, they, what the songs are about. You know, they're not about anything that any other band has, has written about generally. So it's, um, you know, I suppose putting the book together, we were sort of like thinking, why do we both love the fall? They don't really sort of fit with a lot of other stuff we like. Uh, but I think everyone feels that way if they, if they like the forwards. Um I didn't know whether Andy Gibb was going to be mentioned, so it was one of my questions. But um, uh, just in relation to Andy Gibb, how did each of the individual BGs react to Andy Gibb's death? Um, I, I don't know about individually. Um, they were like halfway through doing an album, um, which was called One, and I think. Uh, they thought about getting him in, involved in sort of joining the group, but I don't think they'd really thought about it too seriously. Um, but he got he got like a he had a he had an album he had a new record deal in in Britain just before he died, um, which I think Barry sorted out for him, um, thinking that would help him to get better, and it didn't didn't really work out. But he was he came over and lived in uh, Oxfordshire near Robin when when he died. Um, yeah, I mean, it completely it completely changed the way they they approached making records in their career. I think so. Sort of, well, you know, this isn't what it was meant to be about. Obviously, it's um, it was the only reason we started doing this was because we love music, and you know, this wasn't meant to happen. So I think from that from that point on, they they took a much more relaxed attitude to touring and putting albums out, and um, they were still incredibly productive, but not not as sort of manically searching for number one singles as they have been up to that point. Okay. And just as a second question, uh, I've not heard of Blue Weaver before. Who were they? Well, Blue Weaver was uh, was a keyboard player. Um, he'd been um, in Amen Corner in the 60s, uh, and I think he was in Mott the Hoople for a bit, wasn't he? In Straubs. Straubs, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yes, there is in the Straubs, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Eddie. There's two Strange Brew podcasts with Blue Weaver, just as a plug. 
I didn't know that. <laughs> but he, he, he basically writes the um, the keyboard line on um, "How Deep Is Your Love." The, the song kind of springs from him playing this keyboard, um, and then Barry writes the top line over it. So, uh, don't think he got a writing credit, but <laughs> I'm sure he's not bitter. Just a tiny bit. Thank you. So, if you were to recommend one of the, the 60s albums to listen to as a start, what would you suggest? So I know the kind of the hits, but in terms of the albums? Um, well, there's only the four. Um, the Horizontal's my favourite, which is the second one. That's got Massachusetts on it, hasn't it? And um, uh, World is on it as well, and it's the two singles on it. Um, but it's... Um, it's absolutely covered in Mellotron. I love Mellotron, so <laughs> the Mellotron is like the main instrument on it, and it's all quite. Um, the first album is, is more like Close Another Door. It's a lot brighter um, and horizontal. I think it's like you know they've had to write the songs um, fairly quickly, and um, they're all quite. They're a lot moodier, but they're, they're some really beautiful. It's a song called With the Sun in My Eyes that um, Sandy Shaw did a, a version of. It's um, absolutely gorgeous. Um, so, yeah, if, if I was going to start somewhere, I'd start there, I think. Thank you. What do you think the Bee Gees' biggest regret was? Uh, blimey. Um, <laughs> well, I think, I, think, I think Barry wishes he'd, like, sort of, like, taken things easier a bit earlier, because I think, um, you know, I won't sound too too dark but I mean like any interviews with him since, since Robin died he's like you know he, he, he says I'd, I'd, I'd give up that everything if my brothers were still around um, but I, don't, I mean I don't think working too hard was what yeah, led to their deaths you know it's like um, so that's, that's definitely his regret I think is he could have like taken it easier a lot earlier and he was always the one that sort of drove, drove the group um, and did like, you know, effectively did their press releases by saying things like, the next album's going to be like full of beautiful ballads, it's a very normal record, you know, like, because Robin's writing some mad thing about the First World War and he doesn't want the fan base to know about it. Um, but yeah, other, other than that, um, I mean, obviously, I, I guess I'd have like wished they'd sort of involved Andy a bit earlier. Um, but yeah, it's hard to think. Less, less falsetto on spirits having flown, maybe. I don't know. There's not, there's not, you know, there's not many points in their career where you think, oh, they, they completely blew that. Okay, thank you. I've got a question actually about talking about cover versions. I think my favourite cover version is Nina Simone's "To Love Somebody," and Eric Burden does a, a great version of it as well. Um, one of your favourites, Bob? Um. Well, Al Green's How Can You Mend a Broken Heart is great. Um, Trying to think of a more obscure one. Um, uh, blimey. What's yours? It's a hard one, isn't it? it That's is, a yeah. I, I, I like Milk Cow by Adam Faith. And oh, yeah. Yeah, the songs they didn't record themselves. Yeah, yeah. Cow Milk Your Cow by Adam Faith. <laughs> it's a ridiculous title, but it's a fantastic British psychedelic single. Um Oh, God, yeah, I must be able to think of another one, but, yeah. Oh, and Nina Simone did a great version of um, I Can't See Nobody as well. That's right, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. 
Gary's got another drug-related question. <laughs> it, it, honestly, it's uh, getting away from the BJs. I believe you, you have your own sort of boutique, seven-inch single release label. You, you release your own records, or you, you sort of reissues. Could you tell us a little bit about that, the kind of stuff that you're putting out? I don't believe it's library music, rare soul, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's it, really. I mean, it's... Um, it's uh, a bit of a plug. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I've been doing a lot of compilations um, on Ace, through Ace Records, uh, including one that's coming out tomorrow. This is Flyers for it there. Um, that one is... Um, the, stuff they were actually, the stuff they were actually playing in sort of discos in Brooklyn when the story of Saturday Night Fever was written. So they're, they're the songs you'd have actually heard um, in 1975, because uh, it wouldn't have been the Bee Gees. Because um, it was too early, so um, it's a lot of sort of funny soul, and um, but it's a, it's a great compilation. But um, you have a, what? What's the? I'm sorry, the name escapes me. It's called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. No, I know not this one. No, the, the label's called Measured Mile. Measured Mile. Yeah, yeah. The because there's library music, Basil Kirshen kind of stuff coming out on that. It's basically things that aren't on seven inch already, or if they are, they're like three hundred quid, and I can't afford them, so I want to. <laughs> Press my own copy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's 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 kind of like a DJ's label, I suppose. Wide distribution. Uh, yeah, it should be. It's through Ace, so um, yeah, it should be. Yeah. Excellent. They, they, I think they have them in Jumbo. I think. Do you want to ask me if any of these records are about drugs? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not as bad as mine. <laughs> Any more questions? Nova? The fall of Disco and the fall of the Bee Gees between England and the US. Just discuss a little bit more. Um. Was it the press? Are we driven by the press? Are we sheep? Do we just fall for what's written? There's kind of it, a bit of that because I mean, if you look at the charts after disco is meant to, to fall into a hole, um, the charts don't back that up at all. It's like, you know, even in America, we're like, even in America, my Sharona is number one in the summer of 1979, <clears throat> and up to that point, every single number one in 1979 had been a disco record. So I think it was seen by sort of like rock fans as like, ah, oh, disco's dead. That's it. And you know, as soon as it's knocked off a top, it's don't stop till you get enough, <laughs> or uh, uh, ring my ring my bells on one in Britain after that. Um, so yeah, it doesn't really it it just changes. I mean, it's, it's R and B. It's like you know, it got tagged disco by by the press or by you know people who weren't going to the clubs necessarily. I mean, I can remember when you know disco the disco was the venue, and people talked about disco records being things that you heard in a youth club or something. Like Grooving with Mr Blow was a disco hit. Because it didn't get played on the radio, it got played in clubs, you know. Or Rock and Roll Part 2, not wanting to mention that necessarily, but it was, uh, that became, that was like, it was played in clubs. <laughs> Great record. Um, yeah, so uh, it, it is, yeah, to an extent, it's definitely, the, me the media said, this guy's finished and, you know. And, yeah, well, I mean, they, they were kind of like, coexisted, so, um, um yeah, I don't know. I mean, like you know, in, in Britain, 
people stopped calling it disco and started referring to jazz funk. Um, and now it gets referred to as boogie. I don't remember anyone saying that at the time, but stuff that came out immediately after disco, which is still stuff that got played in clubs, it's basically the same music, but slightly different. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's re it was really kind of media-led, and the, the Bee Gees were um, definitely the victims of that. I mean, like, Donna Summer's career kind of fell away as well, but um, obviously Sheik went into producing David Bowie and other people, and they survived, so... Yeah, the beaches were, were kind of just like they, they were a soft target, I think, as well, because they weren't they were never very good at defending themselves. Because they'd like they it goes back to the Clive Anderson thing, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, they'd never they'd never been schooled in how to deal with the public, mm. basically. They've been like no, Kenny Everett like, Kenny Everett. Well apparently they they, they loved the Kenny Everett thing. Yeah, I don't know wow. why. They hated the heebie jeebies thing, they loved right. the Kenny Everett thing, but I don't know. Heebie Yeah, the heebie jeebies didn't do many favours either, really. It's um <laughs> So it just became like, yeah, a punchline for a while. Can I ask Bob about, uh, I don't answer to this because I see you in car coming, but anyway, um, two things. How long did it take you to write this book? Um, about 18 months. 18 months. And tell them how long it took you to write, let's, uh, let's do it. Let's do it, it took about 10 years. 10 years. But I knew the BG story a lot better than I knew the other one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's next in the pipeline is the... Uh... Um, the Shadows, and did a book on the Shadows next. Excellent. Who I think are also very underrated, you know, massively yeah. important group. The played over the road. The Shadows played at the Crescent Cinema over the road in oh, 1959. Really? Wow. Yeah, both, both my sisters went to visit them. And my <laughs> eldest sister was disgusted with Cliff's skin. He had re he had loads of zits. <laughs> well. But Jet Harris bought them chips outside <laughs> from the chip box, which used to be there. Yeah, true story. And the, can I carry can I carry the songs? It's a really great yeah. story. It's 1959. I wasn't born. Um, my sisters went to see Cliff. Played the gig and all the Pontefract Teddy Boys heard that Cliff was wearing a pink drape jacket, so they decided that they were going to kill him. <laughs> okay. So they all crowded outside the Crescent Cinema, which is literally over the road there, and Cliff was really scared. And the back doors opened, a guy in a pink drape jacket ran out, bust through all the Teddy Boys, started running down Ropergate, and went down to the Elephant. Um, car park, the, the tour bus went round, Cliff was on it, the guy in the pink jacket was Jimmy Tarbuck. <laughs> he, was, he, he was a, a, a schoolboy fucking 100 metres champion or something. <laughs> and he says, give us your coat, Cliff, I'll get rid of him. <laughs> so that's a bit of Pontefract history for you. That's, that'll go in the book, thank you very much. I, be I believe that um, we will the Harris is on the same bill, won't it? Yes, we will Harris. Yeah, we we will Harris. Some people claim that it was it was actually we will. I can't even say his name. It'd be easy to say Jet Harris, really, wouldn't it? That it was him that did the diversion. But your your story is much better, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Any more questions? Roy, bloody hell, fire. <laughs> you want to get up on the stage, Roy, with these? Because I'm fed up of walking over here. Uh, when you were researching the book, was there anything that really surprised you that came out of the book that you didn't expect? Um, I think just listening to the, the later records, there was a lot more things I didn't, I wasn't that familiar with that I, that I really got to like, and um, a lot of unreleased stuff I found on YouTube that I think you know I've got some bootlegs and stuff, but I mean um, it just feels like there's like tons of stuff keeps going up. Um, on YouTube, unreleased things. So there was a, uh, um, I'm trying to think. There's a song called "We Can We Can Conquer the World," very modestly titled song that uh, Robin and Morris wrote in 1970 when they were thinking of getting back together when they split up, uh, which is absolutely terrific. I mean, it's um, it's never been issued anywhere. So finding things like that was really was really exciting. Morris's solo album from 1970, which has never come out. There's a song on that called Journey to the Misty Mountains, which is like sort of Morricone-like instrumental. It's like, blimey, isn't it? wasn't expecting that. You know. I suppose there was a time when they did conquer the world. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, they, they did soon after they wrote that song. We'll again. see that in our closing clip in a few minutes, oh, won't yeah. we? So, Jason, have you anything else to say before we... Uh, uh, only to reflect on the, the title of the book, and, and Children of the World is very apt one, um, given the geo the geography of, of the group in terms of where they lived. You've even got the American connection, Isle of Man, Manchester, Australia, so that you've got that very diverse span in addition to their global fan base. Yeah, yeah, that and, and the fact that they they were they were always children, you know, they they never really never really didn't have arrested development, but they all left school when they were kids. Um, even Andy left school when he was like fourteen. Um and that's one that you know one of the reasons for things like the Clive Anderson thing are because they just didn't know how to deal with that sort of thing. And um, most of their contemporaries were a lot more sort of streetwise, I suppose. You know, there were, none of them was John Lennon, um, so they, they would always sort of struggle to to deal with that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, the, the title just seemed obvious to me. I had to explain it a lot to the American publisher, but there you go. They wanted to call it "Staying Alive," and I pointed out there's already a book on the Bee Gees called "Staying Alive," so it's a bad idea. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah I'd love to, yeah. That's brilliant. The yeah, truly wonderful, truly wonderful Bob Stanley. Thanks, thanks for coming. Good night, God bless you, and happy trails.